Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Now, um, another term that he, I think, maybe even have coined, uh, you tell me if I'm right on this, is the, the, the term Christ-iconic preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is Christ-iconic preaching? I, I usually say it as Christ-iconic. Christ-iconic. It's like Christocentric. I was Christ-iconic. wondering how you pronounce that. Now, I think every child of God has the innate sense that this book, Scripture, is about Christ. So it's Christological. I think we are fairly unanimously agreed that Scripture is Christological. The question is how? Mm-hmm. How is something Christological? Yeah. So I had I struggled with the somewhat artificial contortions that were engaged in to make something point to or explicitly talk about Christ. I, I, I felt that you were doing hermeneutical gymnastics to mm-hmm. get there and not uh, was not being fair to the text or its writer. So this brought what some me, people call Christ-centered, Christocentric, yeah, Christocentric, yes, yeah, and, and so that that made me think mm-hmm. through how what am I doing? How can I, how can I help? How can I help be Christological in a fashion that pays attention to the text, primarily yeah. the Old Testament? The yeah. New Testament is fairly easy. Sure. Uh, so the notion that I borrowed was from Paul Ricoeur, who talked about the world in front of the text. Mm-hmm. So I borrowed his metaphor and said that what the author is doing in each pericope is projecting a world in front of the text, an ideal world that runs according to God's mm-hmm. practices and mm-hmm. plans. And yeah. For instance, in that previous little bit of persiflage that we engaged in, the trash right. is full. If that were in, inspired, your wife is projecting an ideal world in front of the text where her husband always takes out the trash when it's full, and she's actually inviting you to join that world. Right. Which, what do you have to do to join that world? You have to take the trash out. Yes. Likewise, for every pericope, an ideal world is being portrayed, and God is graciously inviting us to live in that world. For instance, for Samuel 15, come and live in the world where you listen only to God's voice and not to the voice of others. So, with that in mind, so each pericope is projecting a segment of God's mm-hmm. ideal world, mm-hmm. kingdom if you want it. Now, there's only one person that fully, exhaustively, comprehensively lives perfectly in God's ideal world, and that's the perfect man, M-A, the Lord Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, capital M. So another way of looking at this world is that then each pericope is actually projecting a facet of what it means to be a perfect man a facet of the image of Christ, or if you would like, a pixel of the image of Christ. Mm-hmm. So that's where I got the Christ iconic. After all, that's God's goal, to conform us into the icon of his yes. son Christ, Romans 8, 29. So each pericope is actually gradually, week by week, pericope by pericope, sermon by sermon. If I'm aligning myself to the call of the text, I'm becoming more and more Christ-like week by week. Excellent. So it's a Christ iconic. Yeah. So you so even in a in a text that may not have anything explicitly to do with Christ, when you find honey, eat only what you need, lest you overeat and vomit. Mm-hmm. If that's talking, if that verse in Proverbs is talking about moderation in eating, mm-hmm. that too is a facet of what it means to be Christ-like. You are moderate yeah. in your consumption. 
So that means that any Old Testament text I can evaluate, analyze, exegete it on its own merits and what its author is saying without having to use it mm -hmm. as a springboard to simply dive into the New Testament. So I understand that that is different from what often goes by Christocentric, but uh, how would it be similar or different to, I think there's another term sometimes used, Christotelic. Yeah. Uh, the Christotelic tends to, there are a variety of meanings assigned to it, but it tends to move in the direction of Christ fulfilling it at some point in yeah. time. And I'm saying I, I may not have a picture of mm -hmm. Christ in his third degree something years fulfilling something or even right. in the eschaton. But I'm saying that canonically, if God has an ideal world, Jesus has perfectly inhabited it mm -hmm. uh, by virtue of his, him being without He's sin. epitomizing. As well as because he paid for all of mine. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, he has bought it. And filled the world with his presence. Redemptively. Redemptively. Claimed it. So in other words, every pericope he's talking is giving me a pixel of what it, So it takes 66 books to, right. for me to see what Christ, not just the four Gospels or parts of the episodes. So would there be a focus on maybe the, the, the ethical dimension yes. again in keeping with yes. what authors are doing with yes. what they're saying? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. ultimately, relationship mandates responsibility. If we are in relationship to God, he mandates that we live in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Relationship first, responsibility second. So this ethical life is not a way to win any points over God or to attempt any kind of yeah. soteriological victory. Mm -hmm. This is a process of sanctification. It's because I'm already in relationship to God as his child, I'm re responsible to live in a manner that reflects him yes. by the power of the Holy yeah. Spirit, not pulling myself up with, on my own bootstraps. Right. Yeah. But. So that's a great um, example of how then uh, Christy uh, conic uh, preaching uh, requires a Christy-centric hermeneutic, a certain way of reading the text. Um, and uh, that then being resulting in uh, an effect on the listeners of, of the sermon uh, in terms of performing <laughs> the acts or living in keeping with the, the intended uh, implication, the if you will, of the text. So we, you know, we have built into us as sinners bad habits, the habits of the flesh. So the goal as we look at the call of the text and it's powerful convincing and convicting of me and impelling me to, to move towards what God is saying, the role of the preacher then is also to turn the habits, create new habits. So how are we going to do, how are we, for instance, in 1 Samuel 15, if I preach that, after the thrust of the text has hit people and it has hit them in the guts, mm -hmm. the sternum has been poked by God, Yes, uh, the preacher now goes in to say, okay, now what can we all do together starting today to mm -hmm. listen to God's voice more or to shut off the voices of the world? What, what can right. we do? That's where your pastoral wisdom, your authority, and your love for the flock, it's a form of parenting mm -hmm. from the yeah. pulpit that you're telling folks, okay, here's what we're all going to do as a result of the text, the thrust of which right. you just grasped. So what I see you doing is you're holding preachers to a higher standard uh, in the way they closely read the text, in the way 
they uh, proclaim it uh, more in keeping with the original intent. And I think what we have working against us in part is that uh, maybe we're lazy, we're stuck in a rut. We like to reduce preaching to, uh, you know, a simple uh, way of sermon preparation that we can uh, easily uh, follow week after week. Uh, so uh, I can see how uh, what you're saying might make some preachers uncomfortable. I'm going to expand that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And because I'm part of that guild, mm-hmm. I don't, without the appropriate tools, and I mean commentaries, mm-hmm. I don't think they have the time to do what I'm telling them to do. Simply because it's going to take them mm-hmm. a lot of time. If it's per book, two years, three, they don't have the time or the resources. I live next to DTS and it's got a million volumes. Um, which pastor in Omaha, Nebraska or somewhere in Austria has, right. uh, has that kind of uh, access to tools? Mm-hmm. So I think what I'm asking them to do is probably impossible without help. And so here's where my appeal comes, mm-hmm. not to the homileticians, but also to the Bible scholars. Give us the commentaries that tell us what the author is doing. And then I can worry about how do I apply this to my congregation? And maybe that's what I as a preacher need to be sweating over and staying up at night. How do we lift this out? Okay, I got the thrust of the text because because Dr. Kostenberger's commentary helped me or somebody else's. But now how how, how do I? And maybe that's where homileticians need to be struggling. Right now, they are struggling with the text itself. And I don't think they have the wherewithal to be able to mm. do the kind of things I'm telling them. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Oh, this is fascinating. And I was, I was definitely open to, uh, uh, you know, see how our conversation might be going. And I'll be honest with you. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I thought your primary target were going to be some of your fellow preachers. And all of a sudden, I find myself <laughs> in the position like some of the listeners to Jesus' parables that at the end, it turns out that I'm the primary target. And My I apologize. <laughs> I did not intend it that uh, way. I, I this put is myself a, in the whole right, in, in This the is same. a great wake-up call, I think, to biblical scholars to, to really think about, you know, what kind of commentaries do preachers need? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I take that as a as a, you know, an exhortation and as an encouragement to, um, to, 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 to rethink in many ways the way we write our commentaries. Thank you. I think my grandchildren will be glad. I'm, I'm a celibate, <laughs> by the way, so I, I don't intend to have any children. <laughs> yes. But I'm, you know what I'm talking right. about. Well, I also think about pastors, young pastors, young students learning uh, the principles of how to prepare a sermon and preach a sermon. And they might do some rigorous exegesis. Uh, but then they end up taking up a, a, a major theme of the passage, mm-hmm. which actually becomes a big idea mm-hmm. and hooking the entire sermon, framing the entire sermon around that one idea, already having done five to 10 hours of rigorous exegetical work, yeah. but that hasn't translated yeah. into their actual sermon. Yeah. I've seen that many times. Because students are not being taught this in seminaries, author- authorial doings. Pastors are not reading this in commentaries. They're not hearing this in podcasts. They're not seeing this at, in conferences. This is, this is not being modeled by the movers and shakers in homiletics. Mm-hmm. So I find it very difficult even to put blame on the homileticians. That's not how they were right. taught. That's not what they're hearing. That's yeah. not what they're reading. That's not what they're seeing. Uh, Your voice in the wilderness. I, I'm ranting and raving <laughs> like a crazy man. <laughs> no one is listening. <laughs> we're listening. And I'm sure others are too. Along that lines... Um, 
as you have been teaching your students for many years, is there a, a go-to example that you can point to as a, of a sermon you've preached or a pericope that you use as a illustrative um, example for them? Um, my favorite one for a number of reasons is probably Genesis 22. Um, yes. If, if for nothing, it's because it's my namesake, Abraham's uh, mm -hmm. final test. And I would recommend uh, Andreas's journal, Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, in which I published an article on the Akedah, right. which is the uh, sacrifice of Isaac. Now, that's a technical article. I do have some sermons which on that which they can people can probably Google and find. But if you want to find out the, the textual details mm -hmm. and the magnificence of that story and how it's written, uh, that article is probably a Give us a taste of it. I know that may be hard to summarize without losing some of the the nuances, but, but kind of in a nutshell, what are some of maybe textual, uh, you know, clues that yeah. sometimes might be missed? And uh, let me give you a couple. Yeah. Genesis 12 is when Abraham first hears God's commandment phrased with the, with the Hebrew term, lek leka, go yourself or go forth. Mm -hmm. And at that time, he's asked to go forth from his family, his house, his relatives, a threefold go forth. The last and the only other time lekka happens is in Genesis 22, the last time God speaks to him. Take your son, your only son, the one you love. So you have this book ending there. Mm -hmm. Take your son, your only son, the one you love. At the end of that account, the angel of the Lord stays Abraham's hand and tells him, now I know that you fear God because you were willing to give up your son, your only son. Mm -hmm. And he says it again, Genesis 22, 12 and 16, because you gave up your son, your only son. I don't know if you caught that, but let me do it again. Genesis 22, 2, take your son, your only son, the one you love, becomes at the end, take your son, your son, only son. Your son, your only son. What's missing? What's missing from the way it started? Take your son, your only son, the one you love. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the account, it became very clear whom Abraham loved more than Isaac. The word love has just been mm -hmm. removed. In fact, that's the first time the word love shows up in scripture. Take your son, your only son, and the bells go off, the one you love more than me. Mm -hmm. In fact, after this account, father and son are never shown to be in proximity ever again. Now, I'm sure they did get together in real life behind the text and talk mm -hmm. about camels and baseball and everything else. But in the text, the narrator has completely removed any connection between father and son. The next time Isaac is in the presence of Abraham is when Abraham is dead and Isaac and Ishmael come to bury him. In other words, a line had been drawn. There would be no doubt anymore as to who would be uppermost in Abraham's life. If I may paraphrase, because Abraham so loved God, mm -hmm. he gave his only son. This is the paradigm story of what it means to fear God. Mm -hmm. The child of God holds back nothing, yep. absolutely nothing from God. And, and there are a few more fascinating yes. tools. At the end of the account, Genesis 22, 19, it said Abraham went down from the mountain, went to his young men, his servants who were waiting downhill, and they went and lived in Beersheba. Notice the characters again. 
Abraham went down to his young men and they went and lived in Beersheba. Who is missing? Where's Isaac? Commentators have noticed that and the rabbis had a field day with it. They said, mm -hmm. well, the angels took him, put him in the Garden of Eden to study the Torah with uh, Shem, <laughs> Noah's grandson, go figure. Another one said, that's right. not what happened. Isaac was so traumatized, he's told, dad, you go along, I'll come later. Mm -hmm. uh, people have struggled with what happened to Isaac, but I think the line's been drawn. Never again after that sacrifice event, our father and son right. shone together. Yes. Because the loyalties, priorities of Abraham's life had finally become clear. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, of course, as a person who loves the Gospel of John, I can't help but think of John 3.16. Yes, of course. Uh, where, uh, of course, it says that God so loved his one and only son. Uh, same word in the Greek that's Monogenes. used in the mm -hmm. Septuagint, the Genesis 22, for, for the son whom you love. Uh, so what would be the implication of, of that? Would it be that God himself provided no, uh, I, I would say this is the call of this text. What are you refusing to give to God? Mm -hmm. If you want to fear God in God's ideal world, the child of God fears God with absolute obedience, reverential trust, right. and complete surrender. Mm -hmm. Anything that comes between me and God is an yeah. idol. Yes. And this is the paradigm text, as uh, Walter Moberly of Durham says, that yep. tells you what fear of God means. The child of God holds back nothing from God. And so Abraham was reluctant, or in the end, uh, uh, ended up not sacrificing Isaac, while God willingly gave his son. Remarkable. Um, Maybe in closing, I would be intrigued. I'm sure our listeners would be uh, curious as well. Uh, who were some of the, um, whether it's biblical scholars or theologians or, you know, other thinkers that, that contributed to your own thinking significantly? You mentioned a couple already, people like Paul Ricoeur. Uh, anybody else who, you know, stands out since surely you didn't develop <laughs> You're thinking in a yeah, vacuum. I think it's it'll be, it, the names might be surprising. Mm -hmm. Robert Alter, mm -hmm. Meyer Sternberg, mm -hmm. uh, Jewish scholars, Adele Berlin, mm -hmm. who have looked at the text and primarily the Old Testament uh, with different eyes mm -hmm. and are very astute about about catching what the author is saying. From our own camp, I would definitely recommend my own colleague. Bob Chisholm, who has the knack of looking at an Old Testament text and right. catching what it's doing. Uh, there are others as well. Gregory Wong, who is uh, teaching in Hong Kong, and several others that mm -hmm. have um, looked at texts and the whole section that Michael Grisanti runs here, Old Testament narrative literature, I think it is, mm -hmm. is, is mm -hmm. a very useful one to attend at ETS. You see, when they deal with particular texts, um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have I, the authors write papers that are extremely insightful in catching some of these wordplays that uh, are often missed in translation. And if you aren't, if you don't do a close reading, you will never see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can uh, see why those uh, scholars, you know, were helpful and influential in your thinking. I, I think my own work in the New Testament, I, uh, you know, think of some like R. L. and Culpepper, the Anatomy oh, yes, of the. Yes, that's true. Fourth Gospel, Johanna, Johanna, or Johanna, Johanna. I recently came across uh, 
uh, this, I think the third edition of Markish Story by um, Mitchie, Mitchie and Roach and Mitchie, uh, significant update. And again, I was struck with how mm-hmm. helpful. Yes, uh, yes. Their Christology is a little questionable, but. Uh, yes, yeah, but, from uh, a yeah. strict standpoint of reading the text yeah. more closely. And Timothy Gompus has a good volume on efficiency, which is also, mm-hmm. which he sees efficiency as a drama. That's just right. Very helpful. Thank you. I'm sure many will appreciate uh, just, you know, having some additional resources they could, that they can go to. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, and especially as we've been able to explore the connection between biblical studies and even preaching now. I think uh, this has been a, a wonderful discussion. So thank you so much, Dr. Guruville, for joining us today. Thanks for the privilege. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.